you saw me stutter there for a second. So, but again, we're so thankful to have here, you here tonight. If you turn your Bibles to Revelations chapter three, Revelations chapter three, um, Brooklyn, do me a favor. Um, she's got a Bible right there for you. There you go. In Revelations chapter three, uh, she's going to get you a um, our outline to be able to follow along. We are in the last days, and we have been in the last days since Paul time. <laughs> it has always been the last days. Uh, even back in those days when Paul was around, there was those that would stand up on the mountain in white robes waiting for the Lord to return. Uh, in Revelation, we are seeing a, a constant drive of what God wants from his church. And it's interesting, in Revelation chapter 3, you find that God is speaking directly to the churches. Now, I don't know if someone give me some um, churches that God spoke to in Revelation. Some names. What was it? Thyatira. Okay, another one. Laodicea, of course. That's what I'm preaching on tonight. Anything else? Smyrna. Oh, you read it, didn't you? What is it? Ephesus, good job. Good job. Philadelphia, good job. Did we get them all? What was it? Pergamus? Oh, that's one of them. Yeah. Was it? I, 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 didn't, I did not write them down. So, Cassie or Chloe, go ahead and give one to him, one to him. Okay. And they say uh, that you, your coffee tastes better than that, so try it out. But here we find in Revelation chapter 3 a list to all these churches. And I love Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 because here is where you find a church that was no different than America's churches today. My title, my message tonight is a tall class of tepid water. I don't know about you. I'm a coffee drinker. If you're a coffee drinker in here, there's only two ways to drink coffee. Hot or cold. Would you drink lukewarm coffee? If you're really desperate, you might, right? You might. You would get in there and you drink that and you're like, oh, let's go heat this puppy up. I got this special cup or a special heater for my mug when I was working at home uh, a few years back. And it would, you'd set your mug on top of it and it had a little electric coil on the bottom. And basically it would heat up your coffee and you never had to take it to the, to the, to the, uh, microwave and one of the problems was is it would get so hot that it basically tasted even nastier but here we find in revelations chapter 3 and verse 14 a uh, god speaking to the laodiceans now laodiceans were basically a church that i think were one of the worst of the of the group um and one of, you'll see here in a reason why and let's go ahead and start reading in verse 14 revelations chapter 3 and verse 14 my wife in here? Okay, just want to make sure she can get that her um, phone to be able to. We'll get to that in a second. All right, verse fourteen. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea is write these things, saith the saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth, my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten to be zealous, therefore, and repent. Uh, I will come to him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will I grant to set with me in my throne, even as also I overcame and am sat down with the Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I preach this message, may you give me strength and wisdom. Lord, I know that I'm not much of an orator, but Lord, I know that you can use me. Lord, I pray that I be a vessel used of you today. And Lord, I ask for your grace as I preach. Be with the hearers, Lord. May your Holy Spirit convict, and Lord, may you guide them in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. How many here are thankful for the Holy Spirit today? Without the Holy Spirit, I know that I would not be here in this pulpit. Without the Holy Spirit, I would be doing whatever I felt like doing. These folks here in Revelation, the Laodiceans, they struggled with the very basics of Christianity. Now, I want you to take a second, and we're going to go over some of these things that are important, kind of a backdrop of Laodicea. I want to, first of all, talk about these letters to the churches. Number one, I want you to understand that these are real letters to real churches, all right? If it were today, they would say, uh, and to the angel of the church of Breckenridge Baptist Church, okay? It would be uh, uh, the angel. Who are the angels? The pastors, all right? Now, my father... He is a pastor, and he had teased my uh, children unmercifully, and he would say, I'm an angel. And he'd keep telling them that, and they're like, no, Grandpa, you're not an angel. He says, I'm an angel. And he just kept going and going, and of course, eventually over time, the kids figured out the angel was a pastor in Revelation, and so there wasn't the argument. But here we find a practical message that was uh, real letters to real churches with real problems. Listen, we're no different today. I love this because as I was reading this, I could only think of one thing, and that is America. American churches are on a decline. American churches are on a way that's not seemingly on the up and up. I was talking to a, a, for, a former pastor, and he was telling me how in the 60s and the 70s, there was a huge surge of independent Baptist churches that took off. Many liberalism had creeped into the Southern Baptist Convention and liberalism had creeped in to other uh, uh, denominations such as the Methodists and the Presbyterians. And it was seemed as if the independent Baptist movement uh, got an understanding. Boy, they, they got a hold of God and there was a spirit behind it. And boy, churches started to pop out of nowhere. One of those churches was this church, Garfield Ridge Baptist Church, started in 1959. There was, a, there was a groundswell of people getting saved. There was a groundswell of people understanding Jesus Christ to be their Savior. It's interesting. My father was one of those guys in 1978. He had a man that would witness to him, Ron Frills. And through that time, in 1980, he came to know Jesus Christ. Or in 1982, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. He was on the tail end of the great things that were happening at Independent Baptist Churches. Now we look around us and we see independent Baptist churches shutting their doors. We see independent Baptist churches no longer uh, preaching the gospel. Instead, they got everything that you would have in the world today. They got the rock bands and they got the, uh, the smoke-filled rooms with the uh, fog machines. They got everything that would entertain someone but not change someone. 
And the problem is, as we look at our church today, are we much different? What would God look at our church? What would he write to the church of Garfield Ridge Baptist Church? I hope that it's not this letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans. See, Laodiceans, they basically had some problems. And I'm going to go on a little bit. I got a little bit carried away there. I want to, number two, not only was this a practical letter, but number number two is prophetical. These letters portray the church at various stages of the church history. The Laodicean church pictures the state of the church from about 1900 AD to the rapture. It is largely the church as we see it in the world today. It is the apostate church. Uh, I, I would say that we're not apostate. Now, I am not the church. Who's the church? The people. Are we, or can we say that we're not an apostate church? Are we not a church that's largely given over to the flesh and largely given over to the things of the flesh? And I think the third thing that we find about these letters, not only were they practically and prophetically, but they are personal. These letters speak to every Christian, to every church that reads them. They have a word for you as an individual, and they have a word for us as a congregation. I think as I read these, I was convicted myself about what Laodicean was about. Let's talk a little bit about the background, background of the city of Laodicea. Um, as I said, just not too long ago, we got to take a trip to Israel, got to see some of the ruins um, of Herod the Great and some of the things of that nature. One of the things about this city, though, it was founded by a, a, a ruler by the name of Antiochus II, and sometime before 253 B.C. So if you want to understand the whole timeline, can somebody tell me when the temple was destroyed? What was it? Okay. And then after that, we find uh, uh, basically a time of period where the Christianity started to grow. And we find that in all through. Paul went through. You, you read some of his letters and you see where Christianity came to grow. Now, I, I want to point out something very important here that most Christians don't realize. It wasn't Paul that started these churches. Who started these churches? Who was it? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Who started these churches? Was it Apostle Paul? No. It was Christians that were in those other churches that Paul started. They were the ones that pressed out, and they were the ones that started other churches. They'd go to other communities, and they would witness. And guess what? In those little communities, people would get saved, and little churches would form. And so we find this situation where basically Laodicea was one of those. The, this, this city was actually named after Antiochus' wife, uh, Laodicea. And it's interesting that a lot of rulers during that time would name the city after their wife. So if it were me and I was a ruler at that time, I might have named this city of Chicago Cassie, okay? The city of Cassie. Wouldn't you like that? The city of Cassie? Can you imagine that? But here he is. I, I guess that's a huge thing, right? If your husband were to name a city after you, he must really love you, you know? The city of Sabrina, amen? You know? A city of Lene, I don't know. I, I think a city of Andrea. Um, but you know what? That's what he did. And so we find here that there were some great things about Laodicea, but there's also some horrible things that they had. They had one defensive problem in Laodicea was the fact that they had no ready source of water in the city. And this is important to understand because water had to be piped through aqueducts. When we went to Israel, I went to Herod the Great, and I can't remember the name of the, uh, the city was the first place we went to. Yeah, Caesarea Maritima. 
And as we went there, there was a huge Roman, and these Roman aqueducts were amazing. And you could just see the structure. And I have a picture of it in my uh, thing. And boy, it's just amazing these structures that they made to be able to transport water. We got our, our own transporter of water back there, Brother Rolando. He works for the city, city water supply. But you know what? It's interesting because as we look at this idea of transporting water, it was important for Laodicea. Laodicea was basically uh, water that had to be piped through the aqueducts. And there was two places that they could get it. Number one, they had to get it either from the hot springs in Heropolis or um, the, the, um, uh, the cold water that was piped from Colossae. Now, the interesting thing, it's six miles to Heropolis. And then it was also 10 miles from Colossae. Now, you know what it's like in the summertime. If you're a kid like me, you would go outside and you would turn the water on on the hose. Uh, I was a country boy, so basically we, we drank out of the hose. My kids are spool rotten. They have a reverse osmosis system, and they struggle with drinking water anywhere else. Uh, they will not drink water and say, Dad, I don't like this water. Why not? It tastes icky. And I say, why? Well, they've been spoiled on really clean, clean water. But as a kid, I would get up there and I would drink from that hose. And you know what happened when you drank from the hose? If you first got in it and you drank that first water that came from the hose, it had been sitting in the sun all day and it would taste awful because it was just hot. And it was not just hot. It tasted like the rubber hose or the vinyl hose that you were drinking out of. And so you, oh, yuck, yuck, I don't want to drink that. What would you do? You'd turn that hose on and you'd let the water continue to run. And what would happen after it continued to run? Eventually it got really cold, didn't it? I remember growing up in Michigan and one of the things I loved about Michigan was its natural resources. I love the fact that you could go outside. We lived on an inlet of Lake Michigan. And one of those, next to Lake Michigan, there was an artesian well that ran right next to our property. And I remember scooping up that pure, you think this is crazy, but I would scoop up that pure water right out of the lake and I would drink it. And it was so delicious. You'd think it'd be something that would be gross. We think of uh, the, uh, I saw today where they were um, dying the, the uh, Chicago River, right? And uh, I, I don't like the look of green. I don't care who you are. Uh, green is not something you want to taste. And you don't want to drink from. And so anyway, they were dying at green. I'm thinking, ugh, yuck. But you know what? This water, you would scoop it up. It was just pure water. It was delicious water. It was cool water. I remember on a hot day, I would love going out there and just scooping up some of that water and drinking it. On a hot day, I don't ever, ever remember being out there and wanting to drink lukewarm water. You always wanted cold water. If you had a preference, it was cold water. And here is Christ, he's speaking to these folks, and he, they know exactly what's going on. Think about this. This hot water that's coming from Acopolis was, was going to be lukewarm by the time it got to Laodicea. Same way with Colossae, 10 miles, it had to go through cold, uh, the cold water would turn into lukewarm water. And they knew what lukewarm water tasted like. And they knew what cold water tasted like. And they knew what hot water tasted like. They had the same spirit. Now there are times when you're really thirsty. I remember we would play soccer in the, the evening sun in August. And we would have one-a-days and two-a-days. 
Remember, guys would bring loads, gallons of bottles of water. They would stick ice in it. They would do whatever they could to make it nice. I remember one kid. We had a problem with kids stealing other guys' waters. And so one kid was really resourceful. And he decided that he was going to take his bottle of water. And he usually had sweet tea in it. And guys were drinking it. And so what he did is he poured in vinegar. He poured in, uh, I can't remember the other stuff it was. It was all, all drinkable stuff. The guy's now a, he's now an um, uh, engineer. He poured in, he poured in uh, all this disgusting stuff, salt and pepper. And as soon as that guy took a drink of it, he got a shock of his life. Oh, he's spitting it out. Why? Because he didn't like it. Listen, Christians, God looks at us and he sees us for what we are. We are sometimes lukewarm in our approach to God. Laodicea's reputation, they had uh, finances. It was a center of banking and finance known through the Roman Empire for its wealth and financial power. Why are you saying this, Pastor? Because I want you to understand Laodicea had the resources to be able to take care of God's people and take care of God's church. Number two, not only did they have finances, but they were a place of fashion. So they were constantly thinking about others and or, um, about what they looked like in front of others. And then they also had pharmaceuticals. Uh, this was a famous medical school in Laodicea, which produced a tablet that was sold all over the Roman Empire. They were famous, much like America today. You think about our, uh, some of the things that America contributes to the world. It is the financial empire of the world. It is, in some ways, the fashion empire of the world. Now, I know you can go to Milan and some of these other places, but a lot of fashion comes out of America. There's a lot of drugs that comes out of America, bad and good. You say, Pastor, how does this apply to us today? Listen to me. We live in the Laodicean age. There is no doubt in my mind, as this was being written, God was thinking of America. You say, why do you say that? Because it really just lines up with who we are. And see, this is interesting because God's not just speaking to unsaved people here. Who is he speaking to? To the church. Now, I will say this. Are there unsaved people in the church? Absolutely. There are but, but there might also be people who are saved, who are not living for God. Why do you think we don't see revival? Why do you think we don't see people saved? Why do you think we don't see people's lives changed permanently? Because the very Christians that are inside the churches are not on fire. They're not willing. They're not red hot, ready to serve God. See, the problem is, is it's not so much that the world's got any worse. It's because Christians has gotten worse. Christians have taken the very essence of the power of God and made it a religion. Christians have taken the power of God and denied the very existence of that power and just created a whole bunch of duties for people to do. Get up and do your devotions. Get up and pray. Get up and seek God's face. Come to church. Go to evening service. Go to Thursday night service. Now, some, some don't even do that. Okay, I've done what I've done for God. Now I'm okay. But in their own heart, they're indifferent to the very ideals that the Bible supports. Some of the things that God has spoken to 
There's no uh, William Carey's who went out and literally went to a place in India that he did not see people saved for seven years. Because why? India was such a hard country. The first convert that he ever saw got saved, went home, and he was killed for his belief in God. America has not seen persecution for so long. We do every once in a while have the government and a few others. My dad was one of them. He went out and preached the gospel at St. Samprosa's and they put him in jail for four hours. Won a court case over it. Listen, that's about to exist. Many people in America have some of the same freedoms that we've been having for years and years and years. What's going to wake Garfield Ridge Baptist Church up? What's going to wake up the Christian at Garfield Ridge Baptist Church? What's going to say, I'm ready to be red hot for God? What's going to say, I'm no longer going to be this lukewarm Christian who's just happy enough uh, and, and uh, content enough to say, I don't want to go any further in my Christian life, or I want to do more than just this in my Christian life. I want to be faithful to God. What more do you have for me, Lord? You know, we get so wrapped up in finances. I understand why. Finances drives the bills, right? I can't imagine men like uh, William Carey and Adoniram Judson, men who literally went overseas, men like William Carey who basically didn't have the financial structure, even one of them went from uh, Congregationalist to Baptist in that time and literally lost all of their support and they had to live off of what those third world countries had at the time. Our finances can be something that drives us to a point that is basically our God. So I've taken three different problems that I see with every lukewarm church. And I'm going to apply it to Garfield Ridge Baptist Church tonight. First of all, I want you to notice something. We go back to our text verse. He says in verse 17. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I cannot think of this self-sufficient Christian without not thinking about the one Christian in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. This is a selfish Christian. Not only do we have self-sufficient Christians, but we have selfish Christians. Here is an example of a man. Now, this man was obviously not a Christian. It's a parable. We find in verse 16, the Bible says, And he spake, go ahead and take him out, please. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said unto him, thou fool, thou, th this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall thou, those things be which thou hast provided? 
so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I do think that we have gotten so used to the good times that we've forgotten that we are servants of God. We've got so used to the amenities of this life that we forgot that God has a better purpose for us. You go to any, and, and believe me, you go to a, a third world country. My brother went to Africa, and he was telling me in Africa, you know, we, we go down the road, and we get a little grossed out by a marathon gas station that's got a really nasty uh, restroom, right? Ooh, I don't use that one. Ooh, that was gross. It's not clean. Toilet paper's on the floor. We go and complain to the customer. He said, you walk into Africa and you go to a stop area where they're giving gas, nothing but a hole in the ground to use the restroom. We have it very good. I want to say that we as Americans are no different than this right here. We have basically uh, taken what we have and boy, we, we, we keep building more and more and more and more and we have no room for God. We've taken the time to say, you know what, uh, I'm selfish. I don't want to share with others. I want to take my ball home, and I don't want to share with anybody else at the court. Why? Because it's all about me. What's this interesting about this fool that the Bible talks about? He literally had barns that were not great enough. Instead of just building another barn, what did he do? He tore down his current barns and built more. Now, I... I don't know. I mean, there are some reasons why he was uh, saying his soul would be required of them. But he's saying, listen to, I think the greater message, what he's trying to say is, what is your life? What is your life built up with? Can you honestly say that your life is full of others? I, again, I'm thankful for every person that comes to this church and part of this church and stays in this church, supports this church. I'm thankful for you folks. But does God have more for you? We have opportunities coming up here soon. We have opportunities to go out soul winning. We have opportunities to share the gospel with others. We have opportunities for vacation Bible school. Can you honestly say that you have done that? Have you taken the time to be a soul winner? Have you taken the time to be faithful to uh, being a soul winner? You say, Pastor, I witness to people at work. That's great. And I'm, I'm excited about it. But is that where it stops? Man, when you're completely unselfish with your time, what will you do? You will give up. You will sacrifice. Many Christians have sat back and they look at their lives and they say, I can work. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine. He runs a, a bus route at, at church and he says, yeah, they just got me working nights now, so i got to quit being a bus driver. Oh, don't get me wrong. I understand you got to provide for your family. I get that. But if God's called you to something, can you trust him to bring you through? Can you trust him to say, God, I'm in control? Can you sacrifice and say, you know what? I don't need to work those 20 extra hours a week. I need to surrender what God has given me to do. Man, we have a hard time making a church. and boy, We have a hard time being faithful to the house of God. We have a hard time just basically making it to the regular services. God has so much more for us. What we concentrate on is the money that we make. 
sometimes it's just best to say, you know what, God, show me where I'm being wrongful. Tell me where I'm being selfish. The Laodiceans were selfish people. It says here very clearly in the beginning of that verse, it says, he says, I have need of what? Nothing. They had lots of goods. Man, we got everything nowadays. We got phones that'll have people deliver food to us. We have the ability uh, to conjure up video cameras and conjure up uh, things at a moment's notice. We can find all kinds of gadgets out there. Listen, me included. We find reasons to what? Spend our money very freely. Amen? When's the last time you decided, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice what God's given me. I'm not saying that I'm not here preaching more money for the church. What I'm saying is more time for God. We miss devotions. Why? Because we crowd our lives up with so much. We miss family devotions because we're too busy watching a television program or too busy at work. We miss time with the things that God's, the great things that God has given us because we're too busy with all of the extracurricular activities that fill up our lives. God gets pushed to the side and you say, I have no need for God. I have no need for nothing, anything. Right? You've basically given your lives over to that job, or you've given your life over uh, to a, uh, a hobby, or you've given your life over to a, a, a situation, or you've given your life over to something that has no eternal significance. You look back on your life and say, why did I spend all this time on this? You stand before the throne of God, and you're going to say, why did I not turn to Jesus Christ? Why did I not give my life to him? It's interesting if you go to the verse here we're going to get this but I'm, I'm kind of ahead of myself but I do want to I, I want to point this out Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 I've used this verse plenty of time to illustrate salvation and I believe this can be a salvation verse but again he's speaking to the church he says behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me we don't have supper with Jesus Christ do we we don't have time with him. Our relationship is tepid at best. God looks down and in my own life, it's pretty cool. I've given a lot of thought into my life. and Boy, I always wanted to have the best of everything. God's convicted me. I was looking at this the other day and as a kid, my parents were in the same boat. I remember 1990 or 1989, Dad bought this 1987 Chevy, Chevy, 87 Chevy Celebrity station wagon. He came home. It was a John Deere corporate car. And they had traded it in. It was a lease. I think it had less than 20,000 miles on it. Dad was working for Kraft Foods at the time as a line technician. And I remember thinking, wow, isn't that nice? Five years, six years of Bible college, and many bus kids riding in that car. When we got here to Chicago, you literally could not, it had no air conditioning, and the windows wouldn't roll down. I remember we would be picking kids up. It would be so hot in that car. We'd be riding down the road on Archer. And we'd have one door open and we'd be driving. Because it was just so hot in that car. 
I remember, man, when we got to Michigan, it was already starting to fade. And I remember there were huge rust spots on it. I remember my dad said, all right, son. I remember him still telling me this to this day. He says, I never thought I would be a 50-plus-year-old 50, 50 man jerking on a car still because it got wrecked and something else happened, so he's jerking off the dents. He got the grinder out, and we grinded all the rust spots off, and, and we literally took, you guys that, you know, you get a little mechanical work, right? We took Rust-Oleum, and we painted that entire car. Roll, rolled, rolled the whole thing. It looked great! Boy, as a kid, I was like, wow, Dad, this thing's transformed. thing had the horriblest, the worst knock you've ever heard. It'd come down the road, and you literally could see it for miles. It, I mean, you could hear it for miles. Before you even saw the car, you could see it, you could hear it coming down the block. I remember we would drive that thing back and forth to uh, 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 our academy. I was never ashamed of it. But you know what? When I became an adult, I said, I don't want to be like my folks. I don't want to have to drive junky cars. And God dealt with my heart in the last six, seven years where I'm in the pulpit today. And you know what? I went out and bought my first brand new car, 2014 Ford Focus. Boy, I thought I was something. Brand new. It had six miles on it. And I remember thinking, no, not like my dad. Every 30,000 miles, the transmission went out on it. God was teaching me a lesson. He was saying, Harold, the things of this world don't matter. Don't be selfish what I've given you. And I sometimes look back and I think of my spirit, my attitude about the things of this world, the love that I had for it, and I realize it doesn't matter. All cars get rusty. All cars break down. All houses start to fade. Amen, Cassie? And you know what? You can put all the time and money and work into it, and it doesn't matter a hill of beans when you die. I think one of the things as I look back out, that old white van, it's got rust, huge rust holes in it now. It doesn't matter. It's going to fade. Where are you putting your treasure in? Are you putting on where du uh, uh, a moth and dust or rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal? Or are you putting it in Christ? There are a lot of selfish Christians. I think one of the things that I've seen in this, this illustration, Christians' love is not towards, should be towards others through Christ. But they've become poor in their riches towards God. How are you going to inherit the earth? The Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. The poor in spirit. They've become ignorant of their literal poverty towards God. They have used every distraction in the book to say, wow, look at all these things this world has to offer. And they keep uh, 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 gaining as much stuff as they can to the point where they have no room for God. And they become so ignorant, as we see here in this verse of the selfish Christian, we find the things that God says of you, of me. He says, because thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You're so busy collecting. We're so busy collecting that we literally lose sight of what God's done for our lives and what he wants us to do. We rack up massive credit card debt. We mess up bills. 
We pay for cars and homes and all these things. And you say, God, are you behind this? And God's quietly saying, no. No. Become wretched. That word wretched literally comes from the idea of inadequate or despicable. Can you not say that the greed of this world has become overwhelming? We see today where people are going out and stealing the platinum out of catalytic converters. So much so that you can't leave your car out there for very long and someone steals it. Takes three minutes, they say. The greed of this world and are Christians any different? Is Garfield Ridge Baptist Church any different? Do we surrender our values and what the Bible teaches for some uh, monetary gain? Are we selfish? We become miserable. You keep keeping these things and you think, wow, if I just chase this one more thing, this one more thing, this one more thing, a new phone, amen, a new car, a new job. And eventually what you're going to say, that wasn't enough. You just keep getting thirstier and thirstier. I love the fact that Christ, when he talked to the women of well, he says, you can drink of living water that you will never thirst again. Can you tell me the world can offer that? Can you tell me that the ministry can offer that? It can. Not only are they wretched and miserable, but they're also poor. That word poor comes from an idea of lacking necessities. And they might have all the goods of this world, but they're lacking in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Amen. There are so many things that a person that has given themselves to be selfish over their, their time, their money, uh, their goods, their resources. It's interesting that he even uses the two words blind and naked. Those are two most vulnerable people. I remember um, when we were when I used to work over at um, uh, Pizza Hut. If you go over here, um, go down Chicago Avenue, and what's that crossway? Ogden, Chicago and Ogden. There's a school for the blind, and I never understood it because I'd go out to the to the corners because I had to deliver a pizza, and I hear this clicking noise. I couldn't figure out what the clicking noise was. I realized it was for the blind person to know when to cross. Same way, uh, the other day I'm working on some new machines, some blood pressure machines. And they have these headphones that you plug in for folks that are blind. And they tell them how to raise it, which button to hit. It leaves you very vulnerable. So it's the same way with being naked. I can't think of a more vulnerable situation. People have nightmares, right, of being naked in a public place. Isn't it interesting that God uses those words to illustrate the Christian who has become selfish? You've opened yourself up to so many vulnerabilities you don't even know what they are. You're walking around like Adam and Eve. And you don't even know you're naked. 
You don't even know you're blind. You're not even knowing you're poor. You're not even knowing you're wretched. And your heart is miserable and you don't know how to get out of it. Listen to me. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will sup with him and he with me. Jesus saying, I can get you away from the selfishness. He's calling out. That verse is so important in the last part of that. It says in this last part of Revelation chapter 20. And he says in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even also as I also overcame and am set down with my father in the throne. And his throne. What is God saying? He says, or Christ is saying, he says, look, I've already done it for you. I already overcame. And listen, you can overcome with me. But we're selfish. We hold it to our chest. We don't want to give up. Not only do we find selfish Christians, but we also find, secondly, self-sufficient Christians. See, the Laodiceans, Back in 60 AD, they had an earthquake. An earthquake that literally destroyed the city. And it's interesting. I've told people this. People can be very proud when it comes to help. To charity. And they called out when the Romans came looking for them to help them out. They said, no, we got it. Remember, they were a wealthy city. They had lots of money. One of the worst things that I think God looks at is when a Christian becomes so self-dependent or self-sufficient. Don't you think it's important to have a little bit of need? I really think it means more than just a little. I think we need a lot. The Christian life is all about dependency. If you don't Cry out to God on a regular basis. If you don't feel overwhelmed, if you don't feel at a point where you just can't do it, I'm telling you right now, you're not living the Christian life. Why? Because that makes us automatically turn to God. And God increases our strength. God increases our courage. God increases the help that we need. See here, the self-sufficient Christian, what do they do? I have need of nothing. I'm okay. I've been able to do this so far. I'm the guy that's just been able to pull myself up with my own bootstraps. I don't need someone to help me. Now listen to me. I'm sad to say that there are times where I could not say that I wasn't that person. And I still struggle with it. I still struggle with dependency upon Christ devil boy he can do whatever he can to discourage me and bring me down and tell me that I'm worthless and you know what sometimes I'll sit there and believe it because why I'm depending on my flesh to get things done self person that's not dependent on the flesh that is not self sufficient will cry out to God every morning I'm going to fail I'm going to fall flat on my face, God, but you are, you are omniscient. You're omnipotent. God, help me today. 
there should be that cry in every Christian's mind, Lord, I need you. Every song we sing, he says, Lord, I need you. In the seas of life are coming, oh Lord, I need you. Do you look to Christ when you have a need? Or are you constantly self-sufficient? Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Who is our sufficiency? Who is our sufficiency? See, again, we understand salvation. The high that was down there, I was talking to him yesterday, right? We were talking about lifting weights, right? And if we had two tons, I don't care how strong, I don't know what the heaviest, oh, you know what, I got a weightlifter in here. How much is the heaviest anybody's ever lifted? Dead weight. What's that guy's name to do? Okay. Let's just say, brother, I got—I forgot that you are into that sport. We're in that sport. Not—not not much anymore. But used to be in that sport. Brother Truesdale, and he was into the sport of, and probably in your prime. I don't know what was what was your heaviest you lift. He just picked it up and he just gets six inches off the hook. And he goes, You've seen those guys that do that, right? Right? And he gets it up six inches. Boom! He drops it. And I was telling Sahib over there, I said, He gets over there and he starts to pick it up. Maybe he gets it three inches off the ground. And then I was talking about me and Tony. And Tony's a scrapper, so no doubt he probably did more than me. He could drop way from one inch off the ground, right? Then it gets to me. And I'm just over there turning goes nowhere. Not one of us could pick that weight up, right? We all fall short. The Bible tells us that we come short of the glory of God, right? We can't do it on our own. And listen, even after salvation, you cannot do it on your own. You need Christ to do the lifting. As you seek out Christ in your Christian life, this Bible verse says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency, oh my goodness, this just, Lord, is of God. Turn to 12, 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Here is the opposite. He says that we're not sufficient of ourselves, but what does he say is our sufficiency? First of all, is of God, but also my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Are you weak enough today for God to use you? Are you self-sufficient? See, the Laodiceans, they thought, well, we have the riches, we have the wealth, we have the medicine, we have the fashion, we have the finances. We're good enough. I don't care what kind of church you come from or what kind of church it is. You could have all the money in the world, but if you don't have Christ... Where is your self-sufficiency today? Are you looking to yourself or are you looking to Christ? 
And every Christian here should stand up and say, God, forgive me. I don't think any Christian here is not affected by their fleshly desires, their fleshly lust, and their desire to depend upon oneself. Satan is constantly telling us what to do. He's constantly saying, you need to do this or you need to do that. We can't live according to our own means. We can't live according to the march of our own drum. We can't live according to the dictates of our own flesh. We must put sufficiency in Christ. There's a verse that says sufficiency to the day is the evil thereof. What sufficiency is he talking about? I heard someone tell me health insurance is wrong. Life insurance is wicked. They use that verse. Now I, I don't see how you parallel the two. Uh, I do think we should be prepared. God is a God of decency and order. He tells you to prepare. And you had the Israelites had to what? prepare a day before when they collected the manna, did they not? When they, when they tried to collect too much, what happens? It overdid it. I think it's the excess that he's more concerned about. Lastly, you've got selfish Christians. You have self-sufficient Christians. But then you also have stifled Christians. Stifled. What does stifled mean? Katie, what does stifle mean? Come here. Come here. Quickly. I got to illustrate. This is the best way to illustrate it. All right? Come on, quickly. Go ahead and yell. Go ahead and yell. As loud as you want. In church, this is fine. This is great. Go ahead and yell. Yell. What did I just do? I just stifled her little yell. That's obvious. She can't. Same way with stifling a cough, right? <coughs> right? It's a limitation. Oh, thank you. Go ahead and sit down. It's a limitation on how you react to something. Christians, when they get to this, and Laodiceans were no different, they are stifled Christians. They are stopped dead in their tracks. They don't grow. They don't change. And Satan has them stifled. He's literally limited their abilities to do what he wants them to do. Powerless Christians is like driving in a car with no gas. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't have batteries either for you folks that drive battery-operated ones. I got one, so I have a Prius. But you know what? It don't matter. You can go and get in that car and you can... The battery might last for a while. You can turn the radio on. You can even get the accessorized going. And boy, you can get up there and you can say, all right, let's go to New York. And the wife says, okay, let's go. And you sit in and drive and you go to press the gas and there's no noise. I saw just recently, this is kind of a side note, that the, some of the new Mustangs that are coming out, they're actually adding noise to the electric ones. <laughs> so when you hit the gas it goes <laughs> I think it kind of defeats the purpose there but again that's not that's just me right I can see I can see brother Tony over there he's got no gas in his vehicle he's getting ready to drive he turns to the accessory and his wife's like what are you doing we're going honey 
are you just sitting there making noise? Listen, you're stifled. When you don't have the power of God, you're literally prohibited from doing the things that the power of God does. I asked a question earlier today. I said, why don't we see more people saved? Why don't we see more people changed? Why don't we see a hot, red hot church? It's because Christians in the church are stifled. They're held back. And Satan has allowed this to happen and Christians are happy to oblige. How are we going to change that? How is Garfield Ridge Church, Baptist Church, no longer going to be the selfish church? How long is... How is Garfield Ridge Baptist Church not going to be the self-sufficient church? How, how is Garfield Ridge Baptist Church not going to be the stifled church? Here we go. And I'm done. The solution to the warm, lukewarm Christian is to let Jesus in. By, listen. It says here in, the, in this verse of chapter 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my there's a knocking going on every day. Cassie, I don't know what she was thinking. One day we had, oh no, this is it's a different incident. We had a lady that was friends with, that was actually my typing teacher in high school. And the sad thing is everybody knows where you live when you live on the main drag of the, of, of the town. And we live in Portage and literally everybody. The other day we had some friends from uh, Pastor Courtney Lewis's church. Say, oh, yeah, we saw all your daughters. They were sitting on the retaining wall as we drove by. So we got to be more careful what we're doing out there. People don't think we're weird or something, you know? So anyway, um, that day we have a doorbell, but it's not hooked up to chimes. And so whenever you press it, it'll chime on my phone or it'll chime on Cassie's phone. But if you don't have your phones nearby, you can't hear it. I remember we were all standing there all of a sudden. The kids are like, there's somebody at the door. I don't know how long she'd been standing there. I'm in my bathrobe. And I have my chamas on still. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. There's someone at the door? Okay. Hi, how we doing? How embarrassing that was. But you know what? Jesus Christ is standing at the door. He's calling out your sin. He's telling you what your problem is. And you're just saying, no. I see him in the shadows. I can look out. You know, when you go bus, we go bus visiting or you go door knocking. Sometimes you'll knock on a door and people kind of, the shadow, the shade will move just a minute, little bit, right? You know they're home, but they're like, oh, those are weird church people again, right? Those holy rollers. I don't want to come to the door. The dog's barking like crazy, right? But you know what? to have a guy that would knock like this. Everybody thought it was the police. I'm like, don't do that, man. It's not right. But here we find this idea that if we're ever going to change, we got to let Jesus Christ search our heart. As David says, search my heart and try me and know if there be any wicked way within me. He's knocking. He's asking you to listen. And he says, if any man hear my voice, not only do you need to listen but listen, we also have to be what? 
answering him. Answering him. When you knock on the door, you can stand there and wave at people. And that's just rude. I've had a few people do that. They don't want to talk to me. They just want me to go away. They're just going to walk away. I mean, you've got some really classy people when it comes to door knocking. Kind of sign the same way you do when you do telemarketing. Right? People don't want to tell, talk, talk to a telemarketer. But you know what? If you're going to stand at the door, you know he's knocking. That's when that Holy Spirit is convicting your conscience. And he's saying, I have something you need to do. The question is, are you willing to answer? Yes, Lord. You're right. I need to change. You know, it's interesting. When you open the door to the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, you're basically allowing him to have full reign of your life. Whatever, Lord, you want, I'll do. What about you? When's the last time you opened the door? Man, we're like the city of Chicago. When you're in a bad neighborhood, what do you do? We lived in, uh, over on Archer Avenue. It wasn't as bad. I'm sure it's worse today. But, man, you had like 16 different bolts on the door. Seen those commercials where they're undoing bolts forever, right? When they get to the bottom, they're still doing bolts, right? When it comes to Christ, we're kind of that way. Oh, wait a minute, God, I, I, I got this bolt here. You know, just hold off. I don't know how to get it off. I'll let you in in a couple months. I'll let you in after I have this, enjoy this sin for a little bit longer. I'll let you in when I have time for you, Lord. But he's saying what? Answer. Answer. It's interesting, once you answer, what does the Bible say? He will what? Sup with you. What does that mean? You'll have fellowship with him. When the Adam and Eve were in the garden, what did they do? They ran from God and they thought they could hide from God. But God says, where art thou, O Adam? Finally, he had to recognize the call that God had given him and he had to fess up to the sin that he had committed. And even though Adam was punished, God still gave him a way forward. And listen, Christian, today. God has given you a way forward. You just have to take it. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. Sometimes it's confessing sin. Uh, all the time it's confessing sin. Sometimes it's coming to someone else and saying, I'm sorry. Other times it's giving up things. But all those things are worth it. We listen, we answer, we fellowship. And listen, this is the key. You become an overcomer. Not by your own abilities, but by what Christ Jesus has already done on the cross. You can take God's word and you can say, Lord, and, and I preached this morning on promises. When's the last time you took a promise to God and said, God, you've said this in your word. Not in a haughty spirit, but you say to him, God, you've said this in your word, and I believe it. When's the last time you claimed a promise that God has given you? When's the last time you know a promise that God has spoken to your heart about? Listen, it's time. I don't want to be the Laodicean church. I want to be the church that God uses in the city of Chicago. I want to be the church that's excited, that's on fire. And God just doesn't pass over because he's disgusted by our attitude. 
he looks down and says, wow, this is a church I can belong to. Let's stand together. Cassie's, or someone's going to come and play the piano tonight. I get a short invitation. We're a little long tonight, but I do think it's important. As you dwell on this idea of where you're at in your Christian life, can you say that you're self-sufficient? Can you say that you're selfish? Can you say that you've been stifled? Because listen, there's a solution. It's listening to the door that Jesus Christ is knocking on. And he's answering it. You spend that time with God, that adequate time confessing sin, I'll guarantee you this, you'll be a different person. You would never be associated with that lukewarm church because you are on fire. And God can use you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you just take this first one in your hand. Someone here that's not saved doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Oh God, please give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If God spoke to your heart, you can come here at the altar, you can sit there at your seat wherever, and you make a decision. you again.